everyone. Welcome back to the Cycling Tips Nerd Alert Podcast. I'm your host, James Huang. We're back with another group show with the full cast of characters here. Joining me in the Boulder Gruppetto Workshop here in Boulder, Colorado is none other than ace mechanic, Zach Edwards. Hi, Zach. Hello. We also have Cycling Tips Senior Tech Editor, Dave Rome in Sydney, Australia. Hello, Dave. Hello. And finally, joining us from Durango, Colorado is Cycling Tips Editor-in-Chief, Kaylee Fretz. Hi, Kaylee. Hi. How are y'all? Kaylee, I'm curious. How are the Tour de France logistics planning going? <laughs> you mean the thing that I brought up in edit calls every week for like six weeks now? That's how yes. they're going. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I mean, how complicated yeah. could it be? Could could it be to follow a, a month long race that you know moves to a different place every day, nearly? Yeah. Well, and it's a week longer now because we have the Tour de France Femme. So, yeah. I mean, the good news is that. Uh, Cycling tips is growing, has grown a lot in the last couple of years. And so the reason why it's so complicated is because we have so many fantastic people that we're going to be sending to the Tour de France. So we're going to have, we're going to have like eight people in Paris, which is completely crazy. Most of we had eight people on staff. It's the overlap between the men's race and the women's race, right? So it's like two teams kind of switching off. But even so, it's, it's, I mean, a couple of years ago, I was at the Tour de France by myself for like two weeks, right? <laughs> it's not it's not going to be that way this year, which is both exciting and a massive pain in my ass uh, from a logistical standpoint. Because hmm. eight people don't fit in a car, right? Uh, not one car. Legally? Like, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, legally, I guess. You can fit many more people in a car. But. <laughs> <laughs> yes, multiple cars, many hotel rooms, flights, trains. The whole nine yards, so to speak. Mm, fun stuff. Well, one of these days, maybe I'll go back to the tour. But this year, well, I guess not this year, because thankfully, we still have Ronan McLaughlin, who will be hitting the hitting the start of the tour for doing tech duties. Uh, Zach, it looks like you are busy here, as always. Is this place ever not busy? Like, I've been in here in the dead of winter, and you always have a wall of bikes on here. Yeah, pretty much always busy. Like, what's your what's your wait time right now? Uh... Probably pushing, getting close to two weeks turnaround. Better, better question. When do you, when do you have to clone yourself? Hmm? At what point do you have to clone yourself? Oh yeah, uh, I don't know. So we can only dream. <laughs> <laughs> what's, what's your favorite bike that you've built in the last few days? Um, that's probably not nearly as entertaining an answer as what's your least favorite bike you've built in the last few days. <laughs> yeah, do that. No, I'm trying to think. I've built a sweet mosaic that's hanging here. Nice paint job. Um. The least favorite <laughs> was probably a triathlon bike. <laughs> <laughs> Always is. Always is. Always is. All right, Dave, I have the usual question for you. What was your most recent tool purchase? Uh, it's a tough one because uh, I shouldn't say it, but I perhaps buy too many tools. But uh, last think? night... Just before bedtime, uh, we just posted the latest Cool Tool Tuesday, and I sort of put the shout out saying I wish someone made a better ratcheting flare nut wrench for eight millimeter brake hose nuts. Because you know who doesn't said wish this for this? So many times, I say yeah. this every week. Yeah, exactly. Right. So I know I wasn't the only one. Um, anyway, so uh, Mike Jenner from uh, Trek Segafredo team suggested that I check out the laser tool, which looks to me like the one I already have, but. I can only be sure once I have it in my hands. So I bought that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Dave. Dave, Dave, oh. Dave. Well, all, all I can say is don't ever change. Oh, thank because, you. Because we, we need you to be the way you are. 
<laughs> yeah, you need me to spend my own money to create <laughs> successful content for cyclingtips.com. I get it. I get it. Well, the, the, the thing is, we don't ask you to do this. Like, it's like all it's we're doing is your fault. All we're doing is providing an outlet for your own for your own yeah. tendencies. Shall we call it? Yeah, them? I'm just I'm just volunteering in my own job. <laughs> I, I will I will say, however, that there have been there has been chatter in, in the Velo Club uh, channel as far as uh, uh, creating some sort of dedicated fund for for Dave Rome's tool purchases. Uh, I actually wonder if that intriguing. Like, could you do like a Patreon thing for that? Like I don't know. I, I guess you'd have to think about that. This anyway. is intriguing. But once they hear what I want to spend it on, they'll they'll probably stop funding it. <laughs> I just want to buy like ten of the same pressure gauge to see what variances there are. Uh, anyway, we have a great show in store for you as always. We're going to discuss one particularly interesting feature on the new C68 flagship road bike from Colnago. We're going to talk about the quagmire of disc brake tab facing. Talk about how handlebar ends are suddenly becoming increasingly prime real estate. And some recent going-ons at Wahoo we'll talk about, uh, which are kind of good on one hand and not so good on the other hand. And then we'll wrap up with everyone's favorite nerd alert segment, Ask a Mechanic. And with that, let's get into the news. All right, first up, Colnago just recently announced a new flagship carbon road model called the C68. This new bike replaces the C64 and also brings an end to the traditional lug construction that has been on basically every C-series Colnago since the C40 in 1994. This new C68 still glued together from a whole bunch of smaller carbon sections. Uh, Colnago says this allows for things like more stringent quality control, more consistent section production, you know, like possibility of custom geometry, uh, so on and so forth. You also get a more modern appearance since the majority of those joints are now visually seamless, uh, except for a couple of intentionally stepped transitions at the head tube and seat tube. Uh, you also get like, you know, kind of expected stuff like a one-piece carbon cockpit, fully internal cable riding, some little bit of aero shaping, so on and so forth. As you'd expect, it is very expensive, especially since it's still made in Italy. It's seven, or sorry, it's $16,000 US for a Dura-Ace DI2 equipped model, or you can get a frame set for just over 7,000 US. Uh, so like, you know, we can go on and on about whether this new modern shape is kind of better or worse than the old kind of more distinct lugged. Worse. Uh, mm. Worse. <laughs> Suddenly more expensive. That is all we know. Is it more expensive? I don't know if it's... it's I think worse. It's, I think it's still just equally expensive or pretty That's close worse. to it anyway. Anyway, you can head over to SockingTips.com <laughs> for the full article on this. I'll have a review on this bike soon enough because I have the bike in hand. But the reason why I bring this up is I want to discuss uh, the headset bearings on this bike of all things. So I want to discuss I, the lack of lugs. That's what I want to discuss. I mean, well, they're, got, still, they're still lugs. You just can't see them. I've got a C50 hanging in here that I'm working on right now, and it is way cooler than the C68. It's a beautiful bike. C50 is nice. I love, I love Colnago. I, I, lo I really love Colnago. Um, and Manolo Bertocci, who's an, an old industry friend, is now sort of at the helm of marketing over there. And you know, I don't want to, I don't want to disparage what Colnago is doing. But bring back the lugs, please. I, I don't like it's what's the point? I don't I whenever Colnago tries to do like ultra high performance, this is the lightest, this is left the fastest, this is the most aerodynamic. I am completely disinterested in that bicycle. Like that's not right? why you buy a Colnago. Exactly. And so and I think they know that. And I think they have always known that. And, I, and so I'm just kind of sort of confused. Like, I don't think that the 68 is a bad looking bike. I just think that like the C60 and even the 64 
are two of the most gorgeous bikes that have ever existed in, in the and, history of bicycles. And, and so, they hold a very unique point in the market. And a, yeah, really unique point yeah. in the market and a really unique look and like a, a well, just an aesthetic about them that I love. Like I still really want one. <laughs> At some well, point, he, I hope to have one. But I, I like I, I don't feel that about sixty eight, and I and I think it's just that I think it's just the aesthetics because I don't care. Like I want it to ride well, obviously. I don't want to get on a bike and be like, "Wow, this is a sixteen thousand dollar piece of crap." I don't want that to happen, but it will ride well, and I, that's that's actually not really my concern. I want more the I don't know the feeling it gives me on a bike well, I, like that. I guess we are going to talk about this because we're talking about it now. Well, so I just here, hijacked you. Sorry, you did. <laughs> you did. Okay. As, we, as you are so, we good can at go doing. back to headset. Whatever you're well, going to. We talk will about. come back to the headset bearing thing in just a minute. But okay, fine. So if we're going to stay on this topic here, uh, Kaylee, I am I am in agreement with you in the sense that the C68 now is is it doesn't it doesn't seem as special as the 64 did or the 60 or the 50 or the 40, um, mainly because yeah it. it doesn't look as different as it did before, but I would say that, well, my guess anyway, is the motivation for this direction from Colnago has a lot to do perhaps with its new ownership, uh, which is probably a lot more interesting than Colnago making money and getting bigger. Um, because I'd say in my mind, the one big problem for Colnago is Pinarello. Because I think we, I, I, I mean, without having seen sales numbers and stuff like that, I think most of us can agree that Pinarello is just kicking Colnago's butt up and down and has been for some time now in terms of sales. And as much as we really love that whole traditional lugged look, my guess is that there are not enough people who are buying those bikes. Colnago also has a history of doing sort of heritage bikes, right? Like with the Master and a few others. So, I mean, it's not... Mm-hmm. It's not impossible that they could still do that sort of classic lugged round tubed frame in carbon uh, and, you know, re-release it because the brand has that history of doing such things. Uh, but yeah, could. I, think this I mean, is, yeah. I mean, in another, in another two years, we could see a C70 that kind of reverts back to more, to a more it classic look, right? Yeah. Or a C50 re-release or something like that, you know, but it's, uh, yeah, I think, I think I, I agree with you that they're making this move to be, uh, you know, tech, on a technological sort of level as the Pinarello F, but Italian made. Because, yeah, and, and like properly Italian made and not just like Italian designed as Pinarellos yes. are. And painted and, and yeah, glued. Yeah, exactly. But yeah. Because I, um, I remember one very, I have one vivid memory of Eurobike several years ago uh, where you know, Eurobike for a long time when they were still in Friedrichshafen in Germany, um, there was, they, they always had like the Italian hall. And there was one section of the Italian hall where there was Pinarello had this massive, massive booth. It was like literally two or three stories high. They had bikes up on on the walls. It was just absolutely like huge. It was just this massive, massive thing. And then directly across from Pinarello was Colnago with its much more modest display. And it was a very, very stark contrast. And I found that to be very telling as far as where the brands were kind of heading at that time. Yeah. I think it's important for people to remember that Pinarello is, is part of the Louis Vuitton group, which is uh, not a small luxury goods company. Yeah. And they, and they, you know, had some serious marketing coups over the last decade. Right. I mean, to, to sponsor sky through its heyday to win a bunch of tours de France that that's hard to compete with. And I, I understand like from a business perspective, wanting to, produce bikes that fit more of that sort of like compete with the dogma 
right? That that that's that's what you want to do. I just did. Can you not do it to the C series, please? <laughs> that like that would be yeah, that would be my. That's what the but V3 like they've done is. like the V3 yeah. right, yeah. but like, uh, but that bike has never really. They've done they did some weird stuff to that bike too, and right because anyway. basically what you have now is the functional pros and cons of the C series with its kind of multi piece construction because this C sixty eight like as much as it looks more modern, it's not terribly light. Um, uh, it does ride really well so far, as far as I can tell. But no, it's not like no one's going to be buying that thing based on weight. Um, it's certainly not inexpensive at all. Um, and if Colnago had issues before selling the C64 because of its kind of more like throwback traditional look, um, now what you have is a bike that still is not terribly competitive in terms of the numbers, but then also stands out less because it looks a little bit more generic. Yep. My, my biggest issue with Colnago at the moment, and I actually really like Colnago as a brand, like as far as the Italian brands go, it is easily my favorite, um, as the brand that I have a connection with. They need to update their warranty. It's it's a two year warranty, which is unforgivable these days. Yeah, it's like I don't know of any other brand that that has that short of a period warranty period on a carbon frame these days. Uh, like most, you know, I I would have thought five years. Like the brands that give a five year warranty is kind of the bare minimum, but Colnago is just sitting at two years, so they need to update that. I think that'll help sell them some bikes. Um, but at the very least, it'll give consumers confidence. Right, because if you're going to be dropping seven grand on a frame set, you'd like a little bit more than two years peace of mind. All right, well, speaking of long-term peace of mind, the reason why I brought this thing up before Kaylee hijacked this whole thing, sent us off the rails as he is so apt to do, these headset bearings. So I know that we have talked at length in the past about how uh, fully internal cable routing is Problematic in one particular aspect, and that is in terms of headset maintenance, um, because since all these hoses and wires and whatever run through the middle of the upper and often lower headset bearing, as far as for the front brake anyway, um, that makes it not impossible to service the headset, but certainly much, much harder. So whereas before it was maybe like a like a 10-minute job sort of thing, it's now potentially like a half-day job and certainly a lot more expensive. Uh, and the way, well, and Colnago at least has addressed the issue to an extent by specking uh, ceramic speed SLT headset bearings top and bottom, which use this uh, instead of a traditional grease or anything, the the bearings are encased in this, this sort of like uh, solid polymer solid polymer cage essentially, which fills up the entire cartridge. It's permanent it's supposedly permanently lubricated, doesn't require any maintenance. Uh, I think it actually carries a lifetime warranty on the bearings, which is quite impressive. Um, so in theory, the idea here is that, yes, the headset bearings are still next to impossible to service, but now you don't need to. But this still strikes me as something that is not going to work out the way that everyone intends for it to. Usually on a bicycle, if your headset's creaking and needs serviced, it's usually not the bearing itself. It's the interface between the bearing and the frame and fork. And all of the surfaces that touch each other ding, 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 need ding, to be ding. cleaned and greased. So if you have the inside of the bearing sealed, that's great. But this still doesn't solve the problem of servicing your headset on a bike with internal cables. It it doesn't. Um, I'd say if you have enough spacer stack on the bike, you could potentially get to those bearing seats with grease, clean them out, and get some with grease without actually having to cut 
brake hoses to some extent. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's so, so dependent on the bike, though. Like, yeah, but if you're like, if you have the stem slammed on these fully integrated cockpits, there's probably not enough slack in the in the brake hoses to do that. So it it really depends on whether you've got great flexibility or not. The other thing that Dave, you you and I have talked about this a while ago. Um, you, I don't know if you're still working on this article or not. I think you are, but um, the fact that so many modern bikes now, especially when you have the crown race integrated with the carbon steer, um, more often than not, those bikes no longer have a supplemental seal on the lower headset bearing. So yes, I mean, you have quote unquote sealed cartridge bearings. Those things are never actually really sealed. Um, but especially since you have the issue where the creaking does come from the bearing and frame interface, as Zach mentioned, if you're not, if you're not sealing up that area, what good is it to have a totally sealed and lifetime warranty bearing? Good question. <laughs> I mean, I think these bearings are great. Like it's they a step have, in the right direction. They have a yeah. use, like particularly on like gravel bikes or mountain bikes or bikes you ride in the winter where the lower bearing is just getting pummeled by water and just destroyed. Like then this bearing really, really makes sense. But it's not like a magic solve everything on the front end of integrated bikes solution. Right. Because it's still just one piece of that whole system. Um, to, be, to be clear, these bearings are made by ceramic speed, but the bearings are not ceramic. This is not like a friction reducing thing. So they're still steel balls, steel races, all that stuff. Um, it's just that these things are meant to be essentially corrosion proof, more or less. Corrosion um, and, yeah. And uh, so, yeah, grit proof. St step in the right direction. I don't know who else is using uh, these Ceramic Speed SLT bearings as stock equipment on the headset. Uh, Ceramic Speed does. It, yeah, Factor. Oh, yeah, Factor. And, that's right. Uh, uh, judging by the bike that they had sitting at Sea Otter, um, Canyon. Canyon mm. CFR. I don't know if that's official knowledge yet, but anyway. I hope so. Actually, they I use such it, small bearings in their headsets. Because yeah. those are custom, I think, too. They're, yeah, they're custom yeah. size and they're really small and wear out quickly. So this yeah, would be so awesome. If just the top end canyons. All right. So anyway, yes, step in the right direction. Thank you, Colnago. I guess thank you, Ceramic Speed, for, for doing that bearing. Thank you for the companies that are at least taking that step to spec those bearings. Maybe add a lower seal to that area as well, please, and try and get a little bit more longevity out of that area. So anyway, yes, step in the right direction. We would still like to see the cables flopping around in the wind from a maintenance standpoint. Not going to happen, though. Not going to happen. <laughs> and if you're going to run the cables inside the bearings, this is at least a good way to go. So step in the right direction, as I said. So anyway, another neat feature of that Colnago is the stock integrated mini tool, which is hidden inside the upper portion of the steer tube. It, it's... Basically, just a slightly customized version of the Stash RCX mini tool that uh, from Granite Design, Dave, that you reviewed. Not, I can't remember exactly how long ago. It wasn't too long ago. Um, but it's part of a bigger trend that we've been watching for a while now of companies that are figuring out ways to hide common repair items inside your bike. And this is something that we've seen on mountain bikes for quite a while now. Um, but now that trend has been coming over to the road uh, more recently. Um, one of the newest items in that category, I would say, is Dynaplug's new tubeless plug kit for road bikes, which is designed to live inside the end of your road handlebar. Um, I mean, Dave, this is kind of more of a more than just like your run-in-the-mill handlebar plug, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they've. Uh, uh, I don't have my hands on it yet. They are sending me a sample before it goes into production, but it's basically they've created a their own threaded collar, which uh, has like a little grub little grub screws that that thread. Um, I guess expand into the end of the handlebar, and then from there, their plug kit threads into that. So it's it's 
their their design brief was that they needed it to be incredibly quick to access. Uh, sort of like while the, the air is hissing out of your tire, you needed to be able to get it one handed, and then at the same time, um, be super secure. So no rattling, no accidentally falling out if you you know if you knock it against something. So. Uh, yeah, I had to play with it at Sea Otter. It seems like they've hit that design brief. Um, I'm personally very excited about this because as far as tire plugs go, um, Dynaplug for me sort of is the benchmark and everything else is kind of lagging behind. Yeah, I think I think all four of us are in agreement with that. Um, yeah. Handlebar ends are really turning into some pretty prime real estate though as we've come to, come to see. Like we've got a lot of things that are designed to go in there recently. So we've got like this wolf tooth end case bar kit that, that, you know, pretty comprehensive multi, multi-tool setup. Um, I guess one of the originators of this concept is the, the samurai sword. Um, mm-hmm. yep. and then you have like the Richie, Richie bar ends that are, that double as tire levers. Um, and now you have like Shimano and Campagnolo putting their electronic junction boxes inside of a bar end plug. Um, I'm kind of wondering, like at one point, like, I don't know. Do we need to like add more handlebar ends somehow? Like, like when is say, all this stuff going to go? The triathletes have it right. I do love the irony. Like you're talking about this Colnago that has a hidden multi-tool. Like on road bikes, we took through axles that had a built-in lever and we got rid of the levers <laughs> to save weight. But then we realized that you have to have a tool to take the wheel off. So then we add that weight back to the bike by putting the tool on the bike somewhere. So like, I just really, really appreciate the irony. The tool is heavier too. Probably, yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Then like a little tap at the end of a through axle, it's for sure yeah. heavier than that. <laughs> yeah, I just, I really love that irony and it's, I appreciate that bike industry. I guess I'll have yes. to weigh it now to compare whether or not it actually is heavier. It, I actually think it's probably pretty close. But then it's not like the tool and the thing to hold the tool and all of it like yeah. is surely heavier well, than just... The thing, a, the thing to hold the tools kind of acts as the compression plug. What well, right. should in theory? It's a it's a big um, long it's a big long aluminum sleeve. It's like ninety mils long or something. So it actually provides quite a bit of reinforcement. Yeah. So, but yeah, the tool itself is. I actually have to say, and um, I didn't love that multi tool. I thought the overall design was like clever, but the execution wasn't perfect. But the little tool itself, I find a bit clunky to get out and to use and put back. The the tolerance is. It, it seems like they do not take into account how the that compression plug sleeve is going to be compressed when the stem clamp is tightened um so it is a very snug fit for that tool and i will say that right now uh, i am having a little bit of an issue with this colnago setup because apparently my bike came with some sort of pre-production or like incorrect wedge piece for that one piece bar and stem so that compression plug is or that compression sleeve is being compressed a little bit more than it really should uh, thankfully, I have not gone up to the torque spec that they recommended because I'm pretty sure I would have broken this steer tube because it just didn't feel right. But even if you torque that thing at you know even modest torque right now, that compression sleeve gets kind of deformed, and then because there's no lee room in there, that that, that mini tool can get in there pretty tight. And then, uh, as I came to find out the other day, you pull on the little top cap to get the tool out, and the top cap comes out, but the tool is still stuck in there. So unfortunately, now I need to carry with me pliers. In order to pull the, the multi tool out of the steer tube, so I can use the, the multi tool. How much does this bike cost? Yeah, sixteen thousand dollars. Um, does anyone <laughs> make a pli- <laughs> Does anyone make a pliers that goes in the end of the handlebar? Is that, oh, not that is I that know of. Not that I know of. Okay. No, like, like no. You, you know, you don't buy a Ferrari <laughs> expecting to ride to drive it to That's work true. every day. Yeah, it's right? not an everyday like, ride. Yeah. yeah, that is true. <laughs> that is true. But anyway. So yeah, like I'm wondering where where else can you stash stuff on a road bike though to to like hide your hide your stuff? Saddlebag. 
that'll be. Is that some new thing, Zach? A weird invention, yeah. Huh. You like put all the things in one little container that just velcros to the bottom of your saddle, and but you can't see it. Can't feel yeah. it. Wait, you wait. can take it from one bike and move it to another bike very easily. Wait, but are they expensive? They're very cheap. Huh. Well, surely they can't be good. No, definitely not. Mm. They've not been around for ages and perfected or anything. Mm. If they're so okay. good, why don't pros use them in races? I know, right? Yeah. They're like electrical taping six mil Allen key. There's you post instead of a saddlebag. This this conversation reminds me of one of the dumbest uh, integrated products I've seen, which is the 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 mini pump that attaches inside of your seat post. Oh yeah, to, I love that one. That was great. So you have to like a, remove your saddle, thing, wasn't like, it? You know, yeah. I think that was a Topeak thing. I think it's Topeak. I think there's another brand that did it, but yeah, just I, I think it probably actually made sense when we all had rigid posts on our mountain bikes and didn't care so much about the exact millimeter height seat height on a trail bike, but uh, on a road bike, it's just uh, please don't. What if you could take your dropper seat post on your mountain bike and somehow flick a switch and then you push that down <laughs> and that turns into a pump? I think you're onto something, Zach. I would I mean, buy I mean, this. I, mean, I would absolutely buy this. I mean, theoretically, why wouldn't that work, right? I'm like, it, it is a... It I is mean, the dropper posts are already unreliable enough. Like, that's not a complication. <laughs> oh, man. Huh, you, like, you could have a, a hose attachment hidden somewhere that would, like, screw into the top of your dropper seat post, <laughs> and then some way you'd have a way to, like, like have that air... Yeah. Very efficient method of airing your tire. Very, very... <laughs> I love I love the idea, especially with modern bikes that use wedge type seat post binders, where, where you'd have to like extract your mini tool somehow, pull your seat post out to get to your pump, and in the process of it getting to this mini pump, this wedge binder falls out of your frame into your seat tube and gets wedged into the bottom of your seat tube somewhere. Yep, and then you're just stuck somewhere. But you have two, but you have two fixed tires. <laughs> yep. So I want the anything. dropper post pump where I can just like pump up and down and add air to my. Yeah. Tires while I'm riding. Well, that could be that could be the Just next Roubaix bounce innovation. up and down. <laughs> yeah, right? that could be the next Roubaix innovation. So, like as you're bouncing up and down on the cobbles, you're adjusting your tire pressure. <laughs> no, <laughs> you can delete. Just delete this from the podcast. <laughs> we don't want right. to give anybody any ideas no. here. All right. <laughs> well, moving on to more sensible topics. Speaking of tools, though, Dave, your most uh, your most recent cool tool Tuesday column. It did focus on all sorts of tools related to installing disc brakes. Uh, mm -hmm. Most interestingly, I would say including disc tab facers. Uh, these mill the surface of the disc tabs on the frame and forks so that they're perfectly square with the hub axles. Um, I, I mean, I know that we've brought these things up before, but one thing I actually never bothered to figure out before was how little the surface actually had to be off before you ran into trouble. Um, so I kind of went ahead and did some like back of napkin calculations earlier. Um, so in the best of circumstances, and we're talking about you know, really mostly like Shimano and SRAM that have just a, a hair of more clearance than Campagnolo, you've got about a half mil of clearance between the pad and rotor on either side. So if that surface, um, if that disc tab mounting surface, as it turns out, is off by even just a single degree, it's basically impossible to get the brake to run without rubbing. And that's assuming everything else is perfect in the system, like a rotor is dead on straight. So, and keeping in mind how little a half mil is, I mean, think about how little that surface would have to be off to cut into that clearance, even just a little bit enough to, you know, get a little bit of that rubbing, you know, out of the saddle or when things get hot or if your rotor warps temporarily when it gets hot, that sort of thing. Um, Dave, you, I saw you mention this on your, on your Instagram uh, story the other day. How close are you actually to buying one of these for yourself? Because I've, I'm pretty close. 
I've ordered one. Oh, which one? I ordered the I've I've been trying so just to back up a little bit, I own the park tool, this tab facing Same. tool, and it it works. It's just every time I use it, because I use it so infrequently, I have to watch like this 15 minute YouTube video about how to use it. Um, because you know, it, it, every single way it's a lot you of pieces. It, yeah, it's it's like learning Meccano, basically, or like Lego tech. This comes with like a configuration for basically every kind of bicycle yeah. axle. Yeah. 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 And like a bolt, you know, you flip it in one way for one axle and blah, blah. But anyway, it's, uh, yeah. So I own the park tool. I am able to face disc tabs at the moment. But for the last two years, I've been wanting a cleaner option, which does both uh, tab mounts at the same time. And uh, Cyclist and VAR offer such things. Uh, and I've been trying to get one through contacting the companies and, saying, you know, I'm struggling to get one locally in Australia. Can you sell me one direct? And I haven't had a response. Um, so, yeah, I've gone ahead and uh, ordered a VAR via a friend in Canada. Oh, my. It is mm. wild. Like, for such a, I guess, like, how difficult it is to buy one of these nice tools mm-hmm. that you shouldn't actually need in yes. the first place. Like, yeah. you would think it's such a, like, brake rubbing is pretty or brakes not rubbing is pretty important to the like end user ride experience yeah and you would think that companies would want to do this from the get-go and Mm -hmm. if not that the tools to do this properly would be easy to get yes it's just a weird disconnect well i wonder if part of that has to do with the fact that as i mentioned i mean that surface does need to be so precise that um Dave, I know you mentioned um, in that article that Ice Tools makes makes a tool to at least just work on post mount tabs, at least anyway. But it's not really the best tool out there, um, and it's a sort of thing where you really only get basically one shot at doing this. And this is your frame that we're talking about. Um, so I guess it is better to only have good tool options that are out there primarily. Yep. But yeah, I mean, Zach, I, I do hear it, it, it is kind of unfortunate that these tools are so expensive and often pretty hard to come by. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, Zach, I'm, I'm kind of curious, how often do you find yourself having to use one of those things here? I mean, pretty frequently. I would say, so I guess I do use it for new builds and then also like if I'm working on a bike and can't get a brake to stop rubbing. But most new builds, I'd, I mean, it depends what it is. A lot of bikes that I build are like, very well nicely finished metal bikes that come straight like they should um but there are also a lot of bikes that are new out of the box that come just absolutely horrible um and i would say it's usually not necessarily just the like actual frame itself the carbon it's just paint over spray onto the the disc tabs and like that's enough that your caliper is not going to sit in line with the rotor how it should um but that's like such an easy thing at the factory to just put a little sticker on the disc tabs when you paint it and then pull yep. the sticker off. Yeah. And then this isn't a problem, but that seems a step too far. So Zach, which tool do you have? And I guess what I wonder is how long does this take you to do and what, what do you charge for that sort of service? I mean, I have the park one, which because it's the easiest to get and, and that's just, what, yeah, it works. Um, I mean, I'd say like, it kind of depends. Like if I'm doing a frame up build, that's just kind of, part of the the process and the like I'm not gonna like it, whether it's a disc tab or let's say it's a steel bike that's painted like i'm not just gonna throw a bottom bracket in to a painted thread right like you're gonna do all the frame prep things before you hang actual any parts on so i'd say it's just kind of part of the process um but 
yeah, do it pretty frequently for sure. More than you would expect. Because from what I've heard, it's like more than half of the bikes typically that you need, that you that you build up that need a little bit of refinement. Yeah, to get the brakes actually, so the pads are hitting squarely and not not gonna like even if you can get a pad or brake to not rub without doing this, like usually something's not sitting square, so the pads are gonna wear unevenly, or something not less than ideal is happening rather than if everything is perfectly square. And, and it has a lot to do with keeping the brake quiet too, right? Like it's, this is not all that different from how you know, rim brake pads kind of needed, oftentimes needed to be towed in properly or that sort of thing, or else you'd maybe get some, some brake noise. You definitely have that sort of issue with disc brakes as well. Like there's a big difference between, between having a brake that is perfectly dead on set up versus one that it's off angle or something, or like, you know, something's just kind of off kilter. And I think flat mount has made all this worse. Um, just, just to, to really illustrate what we're talking about here, Dave, what did you end up paying for this VAR tool? Well, I haven't got it yet. It's on back order. Uh, it's probably going to cost me about 800 Australian, maybe oh, 900 Australian. Dear God, because that, cyc- that cyclist one I saw was something like almost 600 euros. Yeah, exactly. Um, and that that is a good price. That's actually trade. I probably shouldn't have mentioned that. Uh, so yeah, I mean, if, you, if you're a consumer, you probably, the cheapest I found it online is 1100 Australian. Um, which is a lot of money for such a tool. Hmm. That yeah. shouldn't have to exist. That shouldn't be needed because the factories yeah. should be doing this once-off job themselves. Oh, I wish everyone could see the look on Kaylee's face right now. <laughs> Kaylee's like, my brakes will rub. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, I, honestly, <laughs> seriously, I'll live with it for that much money. Like, what? Yeah, <laughs> Kaylee's good. looking at me like, you don't get paid that much. <laughs> <laughs> You just take a file, just yeah, eyeball just, it. Just eyeball it. It should be. What could go wrong? Yeah. <laughs> just paint just it into shape with a hammer. Um, right, well, nope. Well, yeah. well, Dave. Whenever you do get this tool, we mm. we definitely will need a little full report on that because I, like I said, I have the Park Tool one as well, and it does work. I have like the carbon, the, the carbon bit for it and everything, and it for sure does the job. It gets uh, certainly the job does a much done. better. It yeah. certainly does a much better job than not having it at all. Yeah. Um, but I am curious to hear how that VAR one is because, again, like th- that it does both tabs simultaneously. It's even much quicker yeah. and so on and so forth. The, can I just add the craziest thing with all this is uh, I'm, I'm hearing reports from people where the, that the VAR doesn't always fit frames with really low-slung chains. Uh, yeah, well, really, really low-slung seat stays. Yeah, so the, the shops that have a VAR typically also need to own the park tool. Lovely. Such yeah. such a great solution. Yeah, it's awesome. It's awesome. All right. I'm actually well, thinking that I need to go get this done to the back, the rear brake of my of my specialized. Uh, it's very likely, Kaylee, because as Zach mentioned, I mean, it seems more often than not that, as he said, unless you have a a more usually a metal bike, typically from a very very reputable smaller builder that takes the time to do all this stuff before a frame goes out. Um, it, yeah, the, I'd say the chances are better than not that it could, that the alignment could be better. Well, it's just been it's been finicky. Like I've had to like mess with it a bunch, and it it's just never really fully quiet. And if I like peer in there, it doesn't really look like it's and it's basically new. So it all lines up here. The yeah. like the big the bulk of the complaining that I'm doing about like how it should be done from the factory. Like at the end of the day, for me to do it to a frame is not a big deal. But what I would say is like. 98% of bike shops in the country world aren't doing this. So people Why are then? just living with brakes that 
are less than ideal. So that's why I'm right. saying like it should be done it. from the factory. Yeah, my bike like, was built by Specialized. Yep, yeah, I probably bought it not. from them. Yeah, <laughs> they shipped it to me. <laughs> yeah. They also forgot to put grease on like half of it, so that's fun. <laughs> it's, it's okay. I, it's I, just because there's a bad supply chain right now. I've been I've been slowly like as things start creaking, just taking it apart and adding the correct lubricant slash uh whatever grease you know anises whatever as i'm supposed to so zach basically <laughs> what this everything basically is what dry this, basically what this means is that when kaylee comes back for a visit to boulder you've got one hell of a job ahead of you <laughs> oh he's already ah. greased like half the things <laughs> yeah <laughs> i'm coming this so weekend <laughs> i'm coming this weekend it's, this... it's zach's bachelor party this weekend no oh. is everybody coming Everyone, Dave's coming from Australia. I, I wasn't <laughs> even invited. What, Zach's just assuming I wouldn't. Zach's just assuming I wouldn't have made the trip because I've spent all my money on a facing tool. <laughs> <laughs> he is right. Uh, no, right, well, I found a new Zach. I don't need Zach anymore. His name is oh. Nick. He works at Mountain Bike Specialist, and we are best friends. And he's going to fix my bicycle for me. <laughs> Old statement. Old and I know statement. that he listens to this podcast. So thank you, Nick, for helping me fix my bicycle. <laughs> yeah, th- thank you, Nick, and sorry. <laughs> All right, last bit of news. So Wahoo Fitness added another piece to its indoor training ecosystem with the acquisition of RGT Cycling, uh, which now combines with its previous acquisition of the Sufferfest to create a new suite of online cycling simulating software and training programs called Wahoo System X, which in typical Wahoo fashion, has no vowels in it. Uh, RGT is pretty neat for a couple of reasons, uh, not the least of which is the ability to upload your own real-world GPS files to create a uh, to recreate a route digitally. Um, like if you want to do a particular event or you want to train for a specific event that you can't physically do outside of the event itself, but if you have the GPS file, you can upload it into RGT and train on it inside. Uh, what is interesting about this move that Wahoo has made, however, is that it's been done at about the same time that it's also laid off about 100 employees, which is a pretty big bummer. Not a great look. It might be closer to 50. It's, it's, we've heard conflicting reports on how many here. I, I heard from an internal source it was 90. Yeah, from a staff person there. It was, it was several, we'll say several dozen, apparently. It was a lot. Yeah. Um, but it seems that most of these employees have been laid off from its hardware divisions, and uh, maybe one of the biggest impacts product-wise has been with the Element rival GPS watch, so who knows what's going to happen there. Um, what I am curious about, however, is Wahoo maybe seems to have done like a Peloton here in that they maybe have been a little bit too optimistic in terms of how sales have been during COVID as far as all their indoor cycling hardware goes. Um, but... I'm wondering if maybe concurrently that Wahoo sees a need to diversify further into the subscription-based training software world because that maybe might be a more more steady stream of income. Where do we think Wahoo might be going here? I think that's probably a safe bet. Um, you know, if, if you just sort of look at the at the business, like subscription business models are are well, they've been very hot for the last couple of years, it's kind of cooling. I would actually say now. Uh, and I say that as the editor in chief of a media title that is absolutely used a <laughs> subscription model, uh, and, and pushes quite hard. And if you listen to this podcast, you should become a Velo club member. Thank you very much. Uh, but you know, like, like you look at stuff like Netflix losing subscribers for the first time ever. Um, you know, 
subscription fatigue is a real thing. And so it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting shift at this particular moment, I think, but it's still, I, I think it does make sense. Uh, yeah. I, I'm not sure that they have a, that the product that they have yet is, is going to drive a ton of that, but it, it feels like they're pointed in the right direction. They're, they're pointed toward a, essentially a training product that's pretty, pretty all encompassing and, and all inclusive. And, and, and you can kind of get everything that you could possibly need everything from hardware down to tell me what to do today on my bicycle. Uh, but it is certainly, it's a big, it's a big shift for them. Um, and like, I know that they were sort of the uptake on the, like basically suffer the Sufferfest users, the uptake into Wahoo system was not as, as large as they were initially hoping. And so that's not a that's that's not a great sign. That's that's not a sign that they're that they're pulling people in at the sort of numbers that they probably need. Um, I mean, I'll, yeah, like I said, we are a membership slash subscription business, also ad driven, obviously. But um, it's a hard it's <laughs> the numbers look really good on paper, and it's a hard business to be in. So I, I think that they'll have to do some pretty significant shifts to to really make it work. Yeah, I think rewinding back to the the cuts that they've had, um, you mentioned that the rumors are that a lot of those cuts are coming from potentially the the watch division of the company, like where the the people responsible for the rival watch. And it's it's interesting to me because uh, at the same time, Garmin just recently released their first quarter report, uh, which shows a twenty eight percent decrease in sales in its fitness division. And I would say Garmin probably without dispute is the market leader when it comes to that sort of activity-based sports watch and that wahoo has really arguably failed to to drive any sort of traction so if garmin is down that much wahoo just must not be making very many sales at all in that segment so yeah i mean like i would i would I, I haven't taken a look at those numbers, but it would be interesting to see sort of what the what the trajectory looks like and what the curve looks like because I would imagine. I mean, they're up they're up twenty eight or down twenty eight percent year over year, right? And last year, for everybody in the fitness space, was bonkers, <laughs> like absolutely bonkers. So so if they were up two hundred fifty percent last year and now they're back down twenty eight, that's less of a big deal than if they you know were up thirty and now they're back down twenty eight kind of kind of thing. Uh, but I haven't looked at the numbers to actually look. It is, but yeah. it is worth. No, you're that. right. Yeah, last year was absolutely an anomaly, and I, I, you know, James, you mentioned before, but it definitely feels like this Wahoo stuff is is, uh, and in fact, we've heard this from sources. The rival is not as good as it should be. Well, the rival's not as good as it should be, but it's also it was like forecasting errors, right? Like they 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 did not see the the bust at the end of the boom, and they did not fully prepare for it. And that that's, that's a big part of the reason why this is, this is apparently happening again, according to folks in, inside the company who have spoken to us. Well, our best wishes to everyone at Wahoo who may have been laid off uh, and our best wishes to Wahoo in general, because uh, they seem to be a pretty good company overall. And we I love think we, Wahoo. I think we like their product. So I have one right here. I'm wearing the rival. I'm wearing a that. rival watch right now. How about They're not that? even You're, sponsoring this episode. I'm wearing it anyway. You're like a Wahoo poster child right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I paid retail I, I, for like, a Garmin watch. <laughs> yep. Really? Yep. <laughs> we uh no, we we never wish we never wish ill upon upon anybody in 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 the bike world. And I, I think that the kind of scary thing about this is it's potentially a you know, a portent of things to come, right? Like it is, if there are other companies that made the same error that made essentially forecasting errors that we think happened here, uh, we could see some, 
some difficult times for the industry as a whole ahead if things do start to to slow down as dramatically as it sounds like they might be. Now, again, granted, like Wahoo is kind of a different space than like Trek, right? That they exist in very different spaces, and um, Wahoo's probably closer to Peloton than it is to Trek, right? But it, even so, it is not a good sign for the industry as a whole. I mean, I'm all for an abundance of over forecasted supply of parts <laughs> at this point with everything, with everything that you've dealt with over the last couple of years. Zach's over here hoarding. Uh, yeah, no, that, you know, bad times for the bike industry are they're bad times for us. Sign up for fellow club. Uh, <laughs> I, I kid, but also I don't, uh, you know, seriously, like it, it's, it's all, it's an ecosystem, right? And, and we sit within it just like everybody else does. And so, yeah, it's not something that we ever want to that we ever want to see. All right, just well, sort of yeah. Thoughts to anybody who lost a job because that sucks. Well, uh, I know this is obviously this whole COVID uh, COVID's effect on the industry is something that we talked about a lot, um, and we have mentioned before that it does seem uh, through some indicators and talking to some people that we may be nearing the I guess I don't want to say the beginning of the end, but you know we're we're kind of past peak COVID sales boom stuff. It seems like. So I guess yeah, we'll continue to uh, we'll continue to keep an eye on this and see where this goes. Uh, speaking of going, Kaylee, I know that you have another meeting to go to, so we are going to let Kaylee sign off from Nerd Alert here because we're about to go into the Ask a Mechanic segment anyway, where Kaylee is not very useful, not very helpful. I got to go do the commercial call, which is basically just me telling the salespeople they can't do things. Uh, however, uh, there there was a recent. Um, how much tattoo space are you willing to sell uh, on that forehead of yours, James? Uh, just just so I know before I go and chat with our head of sales now. Uh, well, I mean, I guess Was it half or a third. I, I guess it depends because I mean, it, when when I shave my head really short, I, it basically looks like I'm bald, depending on the light. So I mean, I guess you could do like a full skull tattoo, depending if you know if the price is right. I told Alan Chris that that was totally acceptable. We could put a mm. big Shimano logo on the forehead there. Oh, okay, mm. excellent, <laughs> lovely. All right, I'm out. Thank you, okay. everybody. <laughs> See you guys. Derailers, bearings, disc brakes, and rim brakes, ceilings and chain loops. All right, enough with the news. We do have a whole bunch of Ask Mechanic questions to get through this week. We'll see how many we get through. As always, this is not really meant to be another plug, but I'm going to plug it anyway. All of our asking mechanic questions do come exclusively from our Cycling Tips Velo Club members. So if you have any pressing gear or tech questions you'd like our nerds to address, go ahead and become a member and you'll gain access to all of our collective tech expertise. Well, and Kaylee too. Haha. Uh-huh. Uh, all right. Our first question comes from member Rob Stein. Uh, following on from the trend uh, running Shimano 12-speed chains on 11-speed road drivetrains, I wonder if it is, one, possible, and also, two, Beneficial in any way to install matching Dura-Ace 9200 jockey wheels. Uh, Rob says he he needs to replace them anyway, so he's wondering if it's worth exploring the idea. Uh, Zach, have you had anybody running a 12-speed chain on an 11-speed drivetrain? I have not. Dave? I haven't tried it. I've I've heard about people doing this. Same. Yeah. But I did a bunch of forum, forum dating like around. The Shimano 12-speed, the Hyperglide Plus, is, I would say, similarly specific to this, like, the Axis road chain. Like it all just works better when it's all used together. So I don't 
quite understand the benefit of what you'd be gaining to use a 12-speed train on an 11-speed drivetrain? Well, it sounds like what people are trying to go for here is a little bit of a quieter drivetrain because the chain is a little bit narrower overall. But an 11-speed Shimano group set runs really quiet. And if uh, yeah, your chain is say. hitting the next cog up, causing noise, then something's not adjusted or aligned properly. Yeah. It's like the idea is, is like it's it's sort of been going on since like 10 speed even or even 9 speed where you right. you go the the next speed up with your chain so it's a narrow fit and typically the chain technology has improved from generation to generation so you get improved durability potentially improved strength reduced noise better shift quality because the chain's typically a bit more rigid with a bit less slack in it uh, lateral slack so that's the theory but I think in practice I haven't tried the 12 speed on 11 speed drivetrain to know but I believe that like the the inner plate um shaping where the the new 12 speed hyperglide chain has that sort of special shaping on the inside of the plate i i worried that that would cause some sort of uh compatibility issues of certain chain rings and um i'd be weary to try it on the mountain bike side which uses the same 12 speed chain yeah. i've seen people use not the correct shimano compatible chain ring yeah and it just caused all kinds of noises yeah. and like chain suck and yeah just not and good things yeah i'm not sure if that's an uh, sp an issue specific to just using a narrow wide chain ring or if yeah it's it's a tough one I, I i don't have an answer to it but i mean from what i can from what i've read and from what i can tell from other people's experiences it does work mm. uh the the 12 speed road chain on an 11 speed but what road are, i guess train, what are you gaining plus it, yeah i guess that's what i was getting at like i don't as you said, Zach, I mean, an 11 speed, a full 11 speed Shimano drivetrain already runs very, very quietly. Um, I mean, could it be quieter still? I mean, yeah, I guess the, in theory it could be. Uh, I personally don't think it is worth the potential downsides of swapping things around. Um, but I mean, I personally, I think it would be more likely to, I'd be more, more likely to look at like, you know, what sort of chain loops you're using or like the condition of your drivetrain or something like that. Because yeah, I, I, I do think a, a, a really well optimized and set up Shimano 11 speed drivetrain is really quiet. And as far as the pulley wheels go, uh, I certainly don't think there's any reason to upgrade to the 9200 pulleys. Um, but I would say the, this, the stock Dura-Ace pulleys are really good unless you're trying to like go super, super watt conscious. Um, and then you can go with something else. But I would say in general, like a good sealed bearing pulley with Del Delrin wheels is a good way to go because uh, anything aluminum is going to be louder. To go back to the original poster, do we think the 9200 Pulley wheels would fit a 9100 Gen I, that, I don't know either. Yeah. Um, I'm I trying to remember because I've... The only the only variable would be basically the diameter of the bolt. Yeah. Um, like whether it goes through the pulleys correctly or not. Yeah. And I don't Maybe the offhand. width of the pulley as well. Maybe. But yeah. I, I'd imagine it probably would work, but I don't know. It's Yeah. Mm. Either way, I wouldn't bother personally. Just stick with the 11-speed chain. You'll be good to go. Um, next question uh, comes from Stuart Brown. Stuart just bought a set of used Cushcore gravel slash cyclocross inserts for 30 pounds. It's quite a deal. Stuart's wondering, however, if, he, if he's wasted his time uh, or does the fact that, there are, that they've already been used not really matter? Don't like you know, the think... fact of buying something covered in someone else's sealant. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds so wrong for some reason, Dave. Uh, I would say, I mean, <laughs> it was meant to. Foam, 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 of course it was. Foam tire inserts do have a finite lifespan, um, but generally it takes quite a while to hit that life, to hit the end of that life, unless you're running really super, super low pressures all the time or like bottoming them out on rocks all the time. 
I think oftentimes that that kind of damage would be pretty well visible. Like you'd see a bunch of like cuts and indentations and stuff like that. But the Kushkor foam is pretty tough stuff. I yeah, think, it's for pretty the most dense. Part. There's something too about uh, if you like put it in a bucket of hot water that it. I don't know. I don't remember if this is a Kushkor thing or if. I've I've definitely heard about this. You put basically put it in a bucket of hot water and it kind of refreshes the foam. No, that's one of those toy dinosaurs that you get from the toy shop. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. Exactly. (laughs) Like it'd be that could be a side project for Kushkor. Yeah. Yeah. Make toy dinosaurs out of foam. Grows into a different Mm -hmm. shape. Uh, Anyway, Stuart, I don't think you have an issue there. My guess is that someone ran those and just decided they weren't for them. So I mean, these things haven't really been around for that long anyway. So chances are better than not that I think you're good to go. Um, next question comes from Andy Stein. This one is pretty much directed directly at Dave. Uh, Andy would like to know what is the best torque wrench for the home mechanic? Not an easy answer. Uh, not an easy thing to answer. Um, okay, Dave, Dave, I just want to, I just want to, before you get into this, yeah, I just wanted to point out that you should be answering this question from the perspective of someone with a realistic budget. Yeah. And for someone who doesn't necessarily want like nine of these things. Oh, geez. Um, so yeah, I'd say to cover a full bike, you realistically need two torque wrenches. So one that would range from roughly two to say 15 newton meters or thereabouts, which is kind of the small end of things, the delicate end of things. And then, uh, a larger one to do things like cassettes and lock rotor lock rings and bottom brackets, uh, and pedals and all that and crank bolts and all that sort of stuff. So, and that one would typically go range from about 10 to 60 Newton meters. Um, between those two, if you really only want one, then the more delicate end of things is arguably more important. So that one that sort of ranges at two to 10 or two to 15 Newton meter range is, is realistically the one that you'd start with first, because that's the range that you'd be clamping, um, steerers and handlebars and all the delicate things that you definitely do not want to break uh for a absolute beginner uh torque wrench i'd say actually something like the presta cycle their little ratcheting tool i'm forgetting the name of it uh or feedback sports also have one that's quite similar it's basically like a tiny little bit ratchet with a little thumb wheel that that lets you dial in the torque um those are pretty reliably accurate and they're small and they're well priced and they're quite easy to use um they're just not super quick to use uh that's probably where i'd start for a a home mechanic looking for a a casual use torque wrench um going above that you'd you'd be looking at like a click style torque wrench um and they're everywhere um I, i really like the pedro's demi torque because it it comes in a nice kit and it's it's very fast to adjust and it does everything it needs to um, but that's it's quite a big step up in price compared to those uh, the presser cycle and feedback sports torque wrenches, right? Because I guess one other option too, I guess de- depending on what they're using, in my experience, more often than not, for a lot of the smaller delicate stuff, um, most of that stuff seems to hover right around five newton meters. Mm-hmm. Um, that seems to be a very very common number. Um, I find myself using one of the one of the preset um, clutch limited five newton meter. Yep. torque wrenches i can i think the one i have is from snap-on um or i guess cdi, CDI um, which is like yep. one of their divi- one of their divisions um but i find myself using that more often than not for a lot of that stuff and then i'll have a separate torque wrench for some of the bigger applications so that could be another way to go too yeah yeah so i i i think i had it in my in the cool tool tuesday article where i spoke about cycling specific tools and i i recommended a preset torque wrench for that very reason that probably 
at least three quarters of the the time that you're going to use a torque wrench, it's probably going to be at that five newton meters. Um, so yeah, preset torque wrench does does mean you've got a tool that's super accessible, doesn't need adjustment, is always right, and it just means you're going to use it a lot more than having to get your torque wrench out of the case and dial it to five newton meters and put the bit on and click it and then dial it back and. So yeah, a preset torque wrench is, is a great addition and they can be had pretty cheap. Um, again, Presta Cycle have them. Uh, Richie has another one, which is pretty similar to the Presta Cycle. Uh, those are cheap options. Otherwise, at the higher end, you've got CDI, Park Tool, and Pedros, which are all very good. All right, so either way, lots of options. Um, all right, next question comes from Cora Ranum. Uh, Cora, Cora says he has a few, sorry, I don't actually, I don't know if this is he or she, uh, Cora says that, uh, they have a few, a, a DT Swiss ERC 1100 carbon wheel set. That's a few years old. That's about a millimeter out of true question is how much out of true should you let a wheel get before you let a wheel builder fix it? Uh, Cora is also saying that if it wasn't for the internal nipples, they would have fit, tried to fix it themselves. Um, but with a somewhat limited experience, they're worried about, wasting a lot of time taking the tire on and off to test the trueness because, uh, well, that wheel is not as super easy to true as some other wheels with external nipples. Um, Zach, I, I want your input on this one, but for me, I would say um, a millimeter doesn't really sound like a whole lot, but the bigger issue for me is that particular wheel set is uh, kind of like a low weight, low spoke count sort of setup. Um, and if you don't have a whole lot of experience truing wheels, my suggestion is that is probably not a wheel that you'd want to start playing with um, because with low spoke count wheels and high tension, that sort of thing, it doesn't take a whole lot of messing around before things get pretty wrong. Uh, and then at that point, it becomes a lot harder to fix. So if you're an experienced mechanic, that sort of thing is pretty quick to do. Um, if you're not, however, it can go wrong pretty quickly. Um, Zach, what are your thoughts here? Yeah, I would agree with that for sure. And the other things to consider, like a millimeters in the grand scheme of things, not like it could be your tire. It might not be the wheel. Like that's within like what that wobble or like spec could be. But other things to consider would be like, if you have a bike that has not very much tire clearance, like a millimeter could be the difference between it not rubbing or losing paint. Like, um, but yeah, I agree with James for sure. Like have somebody check it out and make sure attention's where it needs to be. And yeah. Okay. So I think, well, Dave, Dave, would you agree with that? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay. I would, is that wheel, uh, it's a rim brake wheel, isn't it? Uh, yeah, actually I don't remember. Um, yeah. It, if it's a disc brake wheel, a, min, a millimeter out of true is really not a yeah, big deal at all. That was sort of my thought. Um, yeah. But a rim brake wheel, if it's a millimeter out of, out of true, it's potentially something you could feel when braking. Yeah. Um, but otherwise if it's not, if it's something that you don't even notice, then you could just let it run. But yeah, either way, I'd probably take it to a mechanic if yeah. you really want to get it fixed properly. Yeah, uh, exactly. And I would, and I would take that wheel to a good mechanic, I should add. Yeah, but yeah, um, but yeah the answer, my answer to that question would be just, um, I'd be far fussier over rim brake wheel trueness versus disc brake wheel trueness. Sort of let disc brake wheels run out a little bit more than I would with a rim brake wheel. Right. Okay, well, uh, moving on to another wheel question, wheel related question. This one comes from David Savage. Uh, if you are looking to get a new wheel set for tubeless gravel tires from a manufacturer who sells both rims with spoke holes in the bed and without... Would you go for the better tubeless performance and more complex repair of having of not having access holes, or would you be better off being able to get at the nipples but then needing rim tape? I would personally. This is a tough one. I, I think yeah. I I personally <laughs> would choose the rim tape option. 
Mm, interesting. But I think that would go yeah. no rim tape. That's what. That's what. I, yeah, I think I was they're go more no likely to have too. an issue with the rim tape frequently that's than like was having to replace a spoke. <laughs> exactly. And most of the times with tubeless wheels, the reason you're replacing a spoke or having to access the nipple is because the rim tape failed and sealant got in the rim and caused it to corrode from the inside out. And if there's no rim tape to fail, then that theoretically shouldn't be an issue. Yeah. And replacing a spoke, like if I, building a wheel like that's not very much fun, but if it's just replacing a nipple every once in a while, like it's really not that hard to use a little threaded magnet thing and kind of fish it around the rim and pull it out. Um, yeah, I think I would go no rim tape because rim tape is, I hate it. Yeah. See, 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 Zach, I'm very confused now because on several episodes ago, I was kind of like launched into this diatribe against, or launched into, into this little rant about how I hated tubeless rim tape. I don't think I, I think you People change, James. People change. I don't change. know. I'm like, I've always been like rim tape is it's the, terrible. the weak it point sucks. of a tubeless. And I, I don't remember this conversation. Yeah, I, I disliked rim tape greatly, but uh, at the same time, I think my answer would be different if it was a road wheel. I would go internal, uh, but you, you'd just say use, use a tube. Um, but yeah, for a gravel wheel, like I've had sticks go into the wheel and break spokes. And for me, that, is something that I'd want to be able but to like repair if that more happens easily. Out on a ride, out on a ride, you're stick not repairing goes, it on a ride, but you could repair no, it back. But what I have seen, you yeah. break a spoke because of a rock or stick or whatever on yeah. the trail. That spoke is under tension, shoots through the rim tape, and then you have a flat. True, and then you have sealant inside all, all, inside your yeah. rim everywhere. Yeah, I see a point. And and I, I will know. also say if you are if you are even reasonably well skilled. If you do break a spoke on a rim that doesn't have spoke access holes on the outside, you can still be very careful and replace that spoke without taking the nipple out of the rim. It is possible. It's not easy, but it's possible. Mm. I would yeah. also like to just challenge the bike industry as a whole to come up with a solution in between rim tape and no holes. Like there has to be a better way plugs to make no <laughs> Zach, Zach, I'm gonna have I'm gonna have to find I'm going to have like to find the, bond the episode. Thing, yeah, but well, that's so real specific. I, I'm totally going to have to find this episode because this is so completely opposite to what your opinion was that day. <laughs> I don't remember this. <laughs> I mean, like at the end of the day, tubeless rim tape is a very simple, easy thing. Should be. It should theoretically, like it's so easy to put on and, but it's it also goes, so easy to get wrong. Yeah. It goes wrong so much more often than it yeah. goes right. And I think like if you are trying to get everyone converted to tubeless, like making it as easy as possible should be the goal and having some flimsy plastic rim tape be like the thing that keeps your tire inflated and your wheel internals protected. Like we need to do better than that. Hmm. Fair enough. Um, all right. Well, I'm, I'm totally finding this episode. That's fine. <laughs> all right. Next question comes from James Wynn. This one's interesting. How long do through axles last? Uh, James gave his open a thorough spring cleaning the other day said he noticed that the finish on his carbon tie through axles looked quite worn. Um, uh, he said the finish on his carbon tie through axles looked quite worn. So the material seemed okay, but it made him wonder how long those through axles will last and how awful it would be if they failed in the middle of a ride. He said he's probably got about five or 6,000 miles on them. Uh, following up on this one a little bit, uh, the wear marks on that thing, I will say were, uh, the, the wear was circumferential. It's not axial. So it's not wear that you're getting from just inserting the axle in and out. Uh, there are wear lines that are around the diameter of the axle, which is curious. So to me, those wear lines suggest that 
like the hub or something is rotating or moving around the axle somehow. Uh, so at first, I, I mean, it's say, like maybe they've ridden with this the three axle not quite tight or something, and it had just right. enough wiggle, right. or have had like yeah. a, a, a seized bearing in the hub, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that could or be. like what I see, like talking about just wearing it off. Like so many people, they are out on the trail or putting their bike in their car or whatever, and they take the through axle out and set it on the ground, and then it gets covered in dust and grit, and then you shove that that's, in. And that's carbon paste. Right. <laughs> it's, yes. it's homemade carbon paste. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or like people's through axles are just completely dry. So like yeah. that's going to be more friction going in and out and just slowly wear the anodizing off. So yeah. Um, my, yeah. My, my initial thought on this is that through axles in general don't really wear out. What wears out is the tool interface. If you've got like a, a tooled through axle that requires an Allen key, that Allen key bolt will eventually sort of start to round and then that's the reason why you normally replace through axles but that said carbon tie is a weight weenie product which i would say probably doesn't have the same longevity as a regular through axle at my guess because that product is weight relieved to the to the edge right Um, and i was going to say too that uh for me thinking about what that wear looks like on this axle and knowing how that thing is loaded um i um we don't have any pictures of this thing, uh, unfortunately. So James didn't provide any images in that Velo Club Slack channel discussion. Uh, however, if there is even like the slightest, slightest little bit of a groove, that groove is going to be a stress concentrator under load. And while I have not seen any uh, through axles break on road bikes, uh, I have seen them break on mountain bikes. And I will say that pretty much when a through axle breaks, the result is always bad. Um, so through axles are relatively inexpensive. So I would say that if you are concerned about this, I would say to replace that through axle, um, just because it wouldn't hurt. Um, and I would say that if you have wear on that at all, that suggests to me that maybe you're not tightening up your through axles enough or like, so maybe check the spec on that, the torque spec on that to make sure that's all done up properly. Um, all right. Last question before we wrap up. So this one comes from, uh, Carl Seacrest. What is the benefit of center lock versus six bolt for rotor mounts uh, or vice versa? And why hasn't one taken over in quite the same way that flat mount has for brake calipers? Can I, uh, I'd like to get Zach's opinion on this, but I will say that center lock has taken over. Uh, at at least, least for the road. At least on road. I, I heard, and I haven't been able to confirm this, but I heard a suggestion that Shimano has discontinued making six bolt 140 millimeter rotors. To give you an I idea of how much, I believe you're correct. Yeah, to to give you an idea of how much Centerlock has become the standard for road, it is now and very much the standard. The other, yeah. like, I would agree with that. The other kind of giveaway is SRAM, it's wheel company Zip uses Centerlock on all their road wheels now. Yep. So yep. that's kind of like Pretty that's much. where things are going. It's yeah, especially telling considering that Centerlock was a Shimano thing. Correct. Yeah, uh, and then it's the same thing with Campagnolo. They they run center lock for everything now. Yeah. They don't call it center lock, of course. Yeah, um, but it is. Yeah. So and and I would argue anyway that I mean aside from issues that you might have with the allowable bearing size, uh, which is one of the reasons why you don't see center lock as much on the mountain bike side. Um, those axles are are bigger at least up front anyway. Um, but uh, center lock is just easier. Uh, especially if you travel with your bike at all, it's one piece of hardware to undo instead of six. It's one bigger thing that is harder to lose than six little bolts. Um, yeah, and that's kind of, yeah, so I think Center Lock, I agree. I think Center Lock has taken over for the most part. Um, six bolt is still around, um, but yeah, for the road, it's basically Center Lock the whole way. Like it's pretty much a done deal. Yeah, yeah. very pro Center Lock. 
Yeah, especially especially if you ever travel with a bike, you'll quickly understand the benefits of center lock because uh, I like to remove my rotors in travel just so they're not bent at the other side. And Same. center lock makes that so easy. And six bolt just sucks. <laughs> it's just so slow. Would, yeah. Personally, when I travel with bikes or when I've done race mechanic stuff, I never take rotors off. Yeah, and enough. it's fine. Like traveled multiple like 20, 20 cross races. <laughs> For multiple seasons back to back with like eight sets of wheels, rotors stay on and had maybe like one or two bent rotors out of all of that. We're talking cantilever bikes here though, aren't we? No. <laughs> yeah, the, the whole wheel rotor. Yeah. <laughs> A 700C rotor. Yeah. No. No, I just like, yeah, I don't know. If you pack it. Yeah. As long as it's not, I don't know. Yeah. All right. Well, there you go. Well, that'll do it for this week's edition of Ask a Mechanic and this week's Nerd Alert. Thanks, as always, for listening and for all the subscriptions, ratings, and reviews. So you may have noticed that we do not run ads on Nerd Alert, and that is by design. It's not because we don't constantly get requests from brands to run them, um, or I guess we don't get requests from brands who want to buy those ads. Uh, So it really is helpful to us if you do take the time to give us a good rating or review on Apple iTunes. Uh, Speaking of which, before we sign off for another week, Oh, it's kind of a bum that Kaylee's not here now. Uh, should we maybe read a few more fresh reviews from the past few weeks? Because there's some good ones. Yeah. Uh, this one comes from Homie Badger 2006, uh, titled 80% Experts. It says it's a great cycling tech show that's 80% highly informed, educated, experienced cycling journalists, plus a guy who owns some hammers. Ouch. Like the three out of four math is wrong there. Uh, yeah. It is. Th- oh, oh, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, or, or, you know, have, we don't usually have shows with five people, do we? No. No, it's always four. Anyway, this one comes from Grown Toddler on a Bike. It says, great fun and informative bike birds, but I think that's supposed to be nerds. Uh, these guys touch on the nuances that interest those of us that love everything about bikes. If you're like me, the little things in cycling make all the difference sometimes when deciding between products or simply learning and understanding how things work in the bike industry. Thanks for all you, you do. Keep up the great work. Uh, very positive. It was yeah. very positive. Yeah. yeah, he didn't really get the memo about leaving a <laughs> leaving a nasty message, but a, a five star review. Oh, I'm getting to that. Don't Bailed. worry. Don't worry. The, the reviews have been five stars as requested. So we did specifically say please leave a five star review, but write, mm-hmm. but then write whatever you want. Yeah. Uh, this one says not too nerdy. Finally listened to. Finally started to listen to the podcast, and first uh, at first I thought it might be too nerdy for me, but as I listen, I'm gaining insight on many new ideas and products. I tell my mechanics, I write it, you fix it. But after listening to your cast of experts, I think I can tackle a few things by myself. Thank you. All right, oh, we need, a, nice we to, need to get an idea. also very positive. It's yeah. nice to know that we're actually being helpful to people. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm a big fan of that. All right, last one. This one comes from Feldy Bikes. It says, stop, hammer time. For everyone who hates Kaylee on the podcast, you're right. He is the worst part of it. But he's also the best part of it, so you're also wrong, as you clearly don't understand what entertainment is. Plus five stars for the hammer, minus a thousand stars for the new podcast art that doesn't just have a picture of a hammer instead of Kaylee's face. Hashtag missed opportunity. That's a solid comment. I'll take it. All right, last one. This one comes from Crash.RipRock. Worth every penny. This podcast is free and worth it. (laughs) 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 all right with that please go ahead and head over to itunes leave your ratings and comments we do appreciate them uh keep them coming thanks again and we will see you next week yeah bye